that goes from here. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles, please uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue on in uh, the, our study of this wonderfully perplexing and, and uh, some com- complex little letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. I'll ask if you're able, please, to stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I will be reading the entire chapter. Now, Paul says, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. For I, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and they pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please do be seated. So this chapter contains what is probably, I would guess, uh, the Bible's most oft-used clause whenever the subject of giving comes up in the church. Anybody catch what it was? God loves a cheerful giver. And usually sermons that are centered around that verse, it's usually plucked out of just taking that verse, grabbing it, and encouraging everyone, rightly, to be joyful and cheerful in their giving. So that's not a problem, but do note that I said the most oft-used clause. I didn't use the word sentence or even, say, the most used verse, because it's usually just that dependent clause uh, from the rest of the verse. I mean, that clause is a sweet truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you take it out of its context, it tends to rob it of its full impact. I mean, what does it really mean to be a cheerful giver? 
Now let's think about how this fits in with what we've been talking about the past few weeks in uh, on this general subject of giving. Remember, uh, we've looked at chapter 8 pretty extensively and saw a couple different sections there. The first one uh, we looked at, the, the first half, had to do with all the grace that God had been pouring out upon them and that and he was commending them for the evidence of that grace in their lives being shown by the excelling or the bountiful overflowing of grace in every aspect of their lives as they ministered to one another. A wonderful commendation that's there. And then the second half of the chapter, we've talked a lot about integrity and the importance of integrity and that it's not just enough to have received grace and be feeling great about everything. You still have to behave in an ethical matter uh, walking with integrity. We're going to have occasion as we look at a little word that cropped up towards the end of this passage now in chapter 9 that uh, is a familiar one to us, but you might have looked at and gone, why is that there? Well, it all ties in. Chapters 8 and 9 are a, real, are a package deal. And Paul is going about talking about giving in a way that I think you've, if you've been here and been and have heard these messages, I think you've got a, got a hold of the idea that this is not the usual way of, of trying to twist people's arms to get them to give more. That's really not the point. The point is about walking, showing grace as that God has given grace and to do so in a manner that is consistent with his character, walking in an integrity that is blameless before God and man. So now he gets to a little bit more of the actual gift itself. Remember, we pointed out a couple of times that he hasn't, I mean, while he's referred to it, he hasn't really talked about you know, what it is per se. And even here, he doesn't go into a lot of detail, but he, he's talking more about the gift and actually getting it to the saints in Jerusalem. And with, so with that in mind then, with that whole context to, to uh, with you know, that, that bed to lay that clause in, that God loves a cheerful giver, the, I think hopefully as we, fin as we wrap up this section on giving, that you'll have a, a real concept in mind, a biblical concept, that God's grace, when it's received, always leads to uh, cheerful giving in lots of different ways. Not just money, but money is one of them as well. So let's think about this cheerful giving that is at the heart of this. You'll notice in chapter 6, or sorry, verse 6 of chapter 9, Paul, so you, you, there are some passages you wonder, what's the author getting at? What's the point? Well, you don't have any problem knowing what the point is here because he says, the point is this. Don't sow sparingly, sow bountifully. Because God loves a cheerful giver. So, what does cheerful giving look like? Well, verses 1 through 5, Paul is speaking a lot about the kind of the, the logistics that are involved, to some degree anyway. He's talking about the plans. And cheerful giving is not something that we just kind of hope is going to happen. Oh, look, I've got a little bit of money here. I'll go ahead and give that. Have you ever been in a church service somewhere, maybe you're a guest or whatever, and you didn't know they were taking an offering, um, up, maybe a special offering or something, 
and it's coming around and you're going, where's my wallet? And I can't get it out. My, my wallet's in a pocket with a button in it and you're sitting there on the thing and it's tight and you know, how am I gonna get this button out? And by the time I figure that out, I'm like, oh, what I wanna do, the plates pass me and I'm like, now what do I do? <laughs> you know, Because I didn't plan, right? But if I know it's coming, well, then I get my wallet out ahead of time and figure out what I'm gonna be able to do and, and I'm ready, all right? Cheerful giving, there's a readiness that's about it. If you look in this section, it's ready, 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 over and over and over again. So there's a plan, uh, and, a, and, and, and it plans, cheerful giving is about planning with, with a zealous readiness that you're, you're eager and you're prepared. Let's see what that looks like. First of all, this readiness needs to, is something that will be obvious. Paul has had lots of opportunities to criticize the Corinthian church. They've had lots of problems theologically and practically in their behavior. Um, though they thought they were, you know, remember in first, for those of you that are here, we went through first Corinthians. Well, they had all kinds of reasons for doing why they were, do, were doing what they were doing and believing what they were believing and about this saying and that saying and this thing and this the other thing that they were constantly bringing up and Paul was constantly quoting them and saying, well, some say this, but here, basically here's what God says about it. Uh, it was one of the reasons why the Corinthians were frustrated with him because he didn't just let them believe anything they wanted to believe. So here you have uh, an occasion, though, where Paul can look at them and go, you guys were on top of this. And he gives praise where praise is due. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. I almost don't even need to talk about it except to, <clears throat> pardon me, encourage you in continuing to do well. So this readiness is obvious. Uh, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about uh, our congregation is the readiness to to step up and help one another when that necessity is there. I, it's something that's um, kind of characteristic even of our community, even among people in this community that um, aren't believers. There's still a desire to be good neighbors and help one another. And that, that we all look at that and we think that's commendable. And it's something that's a characteristic, a characteristic that is known about our community. And I think it's known about our church as well. And that's a wonderful thing. And to God be the glory for that. But it ought to be obvious. You're, you're, and not that you're walking around going, I am ready to give and help anybody you want so that everybody will go, what a noble person you are. And that's not the point. But it just, by your actions, letting those actions speak louder than words, it ought to be characteristic of us that we are those who are kind-hearted and generous and willing to do what is necessary. This morning in Sunday school is as Brother Steve was teaching from Luke 16 on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he pointed out that here's, here's Lazarus who's sitting out, um, uh, laying out uh, outside the gate of this man's house, uh, a place where he had been, this poor man Lazarus had been dumped, and where the rich man could easily have helped but I, I rather suspect that that rich man was not known for being charitable to those in need anyway. He might have contributed to causes that upped his status, but when it came to contributing to those who could, as that quote from uh, 
Samuel. Oh, <laughs> forgotten last name now. Anyway, basically, you'll basically know the 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 character of a man by by uh, Johnson, um, by uh, you know how he treats those who can do him absolutely no good in return. I don't think the rich man in that parable would have been known for being a charitable guy. We need to be known just as the uh, Corinthians were known for being charitable. Uh, it was obvious it's superfluous. Paul knew that and had been, in fact, boasting of that to others, right? In great confidence. And this is kind of interesting in verse 2. It says, I know of your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. Do you remember back in chapter 8? He's... He is lifted up, in chapter 8, he lifted up the Macedonians to the Corinthians and said, now, you need to do what they're doing. He lifts them up as an example of their sacrificial giving. Out of their poverty, they gave. They gave above measure, out of their poverty. He's talking about their sacrifice, talking about their, that kind of sympathetic, empathetic compassion that compelled them to give beyond their means. And do so freely before the Lord. Now he says, I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready for a year. Well, we talked about the fact that this project of raising the funds had started some time ago, but it had stalled, probably because of the conflict that was going on between the, the congregation and Paul. And that once that relationship was, was fixed, then things could, other things, important things could go on and move forward. Well, so he, now he's given uh, to the Macedonians, he is giving the Achaeans, those who live in uh, Greece there, uh, particularly around Corinth, he's lifting them up to the Macedonians as an example of ready giving. And apparently, in many ways, the, all, all these funds, it seems like, as you read this text, that uh, at least a majority or a significant portion of these funds had already been collected a year prior. They were ready to go. And, but then things just sat there and didn't move forward because of the issues that were going on. But he, the, the, that didn't change the fact that they were ready to give and ready to get involved in this project. So uh, that kind of readiness, yes, it's obvious. And really, at each one of us, uh, and I, I'm not going to, I don't want to encourage this in a certain way, but in a way I do. In striving to outgive one another with a readiness, and I don't necessarily mean in the amount, but in an eagerness to help, that we can, we can be examples to one another of having a ready heart to give to one another uh, without, uh, without dragging our feet about it, just getting on it and doing what is necessary when the time comes. But I also want you to notice here, there's, a, there's an emphasis upon the, remember the brothers that we that talked about, the two unnamed brothers, and then Titus, who was mentioned in chapter 8. And these men that Paul had chosen, or, the, or the, and the, uh, in one case with Titus, and then also with the other two brothers, the church had chosen and commissioned them to accompany this gift and get it on board and get it going and do so uh, we talked a, quite a bit, I think, last week about accountability and all of that sort of thing as part of our integrity. Well, Paul brings them up again here. And 
Yes, the readiness is there. No doubt about that. He boasts about it. But Paul is saying, you know what? If these guys are coming along, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting may not prove empty. Now, he's not accusing the Corinthians of like, okay, the money's been sitting there. I think we'll dip into the pot and use it for something else. Um, but, I mean, de- you know, deliberately with malicious intent. But I want you to think about just your own private finances for a minute. At whatever level they are. Do you ever set aside uh, a portion of money at the beginning, thinking about a project, thinking about something else that you were going to do with this? And you set aside, we're going to save this for that. And then it sits there for a while and nothing happens with the project. And then lo and behold, something else comes up. Something breaks you see something else you want, um, some other need, whatever, comes, comes up and you go, oh, I have that sum of money over here. Uh, maybe I could use it for that instead. Now, there's nothing wrong with that ethically, of course. But at the same time, I think Paul knows that things like that can happen. And it'd be very easy for these funds that have been set aside for a charitable purpose to help the brothers and sisters in Christ down in Jerusalem for it to go, oh, you know what, we need uh, something in the church, or we need to send somebody here, or this, this need arises, or whatever else. And those monies could be frittered away. And that would be a horrible thing. In particular, I think all of us that have been around for a while have knowledge of different ministries that have been dramatically hurt because leadership took money that was designated for one purpose, saw a different need over here that seemed to be more of a, of a bigger fire that needed to be addressed to begin with, and they took it in, in, in all good intention to say, you know, well, it's God's money, so we'll put it over here. And ministries have been destroyed because of that, because of the lack of trust, lack of confidence, when people give for one purpose and it's used for another, um, often without telling anybody until after the fact and then trying to justify it. Well, this was a bigger need right now. It's like, that's what it was given for. Uh, do we trust the Lord enough to supply for those other things? We should. So anyway, there's an accountability that goes along with the readiness. And you know what? Going back to the integrity discussion just prior to this, those who are trustworthy, who are walking in integrity, are not going to resent oversight. They're not going to resent the accountability. In fact, they'll appreciate it. Because it will, it will help to verify that what they're doing is honorable and upright and accomplishing the purposes for which those funds were given. So there's a, an accountability here. Um, you know, you think about different, in, our, in your own home budgets and here at the church, we have safeguards, right? That we're gonna keep things going, particularly in the church in a nonprofit kind of situation, not-for-profit situation. You gotta keep pretty good records so that you know where all of those dollars went and what they were, particularly those that were designated with, uh, you know, with a preference about where they should go. Um, those need to be carefully accounted for. And that's why in our annual meeting, we give you those kind of reports so that you know how things were dispensed and that they were dispensed appropriately. Those are just part of the safeguards that you do. And uh, there's nobody on the session. Uh, Brother Charles, as our bookkeeper, doesn't go, oh, well, don't they trust me? No, he's grateful for that safeguard, even for his own name and reputation, that things are done 
under the eyes of everybody. So there's an accountability there. So uh, that readiness is apparent here as well. See that in verse three, in the first part of verse three. And then it kind of bringing up to this summary uh, aspect of readiness here about being ready or being prepared. Uh, so the brothers are coming so that you are going to be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, we'll be humiliated uh, by having been confident in somebody that really didn't deserve that confidence, is what Paul is saying. Paul is confident that they deserve that confidence. So uh, he's saying, all right, let's, we'll, we'll be ready to go. That kind of preparation doesn't just happen. Again, it's not just, well, let's see what I happen to have now. Oh, look, there's an E. Well, oh, well can't do anything right now because we didn't prepare about it you know when we do our our weekly our monthly uh, benevolence offerings why try to send it out ahead of time at least a reminder that it's coming um and particularly if we have something specific in mind to let you know what it's for so that you can be ready to be able to give accordingly uh and we'll be doing that again next week for example and i be making a, a, an executive decision here. I think probably uh, we'll be looking at using those funds to help uh, Brother Matthews with uh, the financial ex uh, burdens that they're experiencing because of his treatments. So things like that. Okay, so we're going to be prepared next week and not be like me sitting there going, I can't get my wallet out of my pants here so that I can actually give something. And boy, when I get there, I'm like, Oh man, I thought I had a 20 in here, or I had a 50 in here, or I had a five in here, right? Something, and I got a couple of ones. You know, that's, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't thinking about it ahead of time. Let's be prepared. That's part of, in your home. How, anybody run their homes that way? If you do, you're going to be in constant financial problems. If you don't prepare a budget, you should. Because it's about, it's about a readiness, not just so that you can run your household well, but as a believer, you also have an obligation to the household of faith. And you need to prepare for that. That's got to be part of your budget. Right off the top, the Lord gets his, and you plan for that. If you don't, you will find every other thing that's going to be coming in and going, oh, there's this, there's that, there's the dog, there's the kids, there's the lawnmower, there's the car, there's the house payment, there's the whatever else. Oh, what do you know? I don't have anything left. Oh, well, maybe next month. No, you got to prepare. You have to prepare. And that's not just a monthly, month-by-month -month budget process. It also has to do with just your long-term planning, right? One of the things that we do as a church, if those of you who've been here a while, you know that at our annual meeting, the other thing that we do, besides just saying, all right, here's the budget, take a look at it, two, three weeks, we're going to come back, we're going to discuss it, but also there's reports, right? Again, that goes back to the accountability thing. Here's how things were used. You, in knowing those reports and being prepared to do that, it doesn't just happen. So you want to be financially wise, this isn't intended to be a financial seminar, but anyway, you got a budget, you have to plan. And when it comes to the Lord's work, don't give the Lord the dregs of your preparation. The, the leftovers, as long as it's convenient for you. Off the top, plan to support the Lord and his people. Now, secondly, aspect of cheerful giving. 
And the, the, this is the heart of this section, this chapter, uh, where Paul says, and the point of all this is, look at how this giving is characterized because cheerful giving uh, does involve actually, okay, you ready for this? Giving. It's, it's an action, is it not? It's not just warm thoughts. It's about actually putting feet to those prayers that you have for others. So it acts, and it, but it does so with a happy willingness. When you look through this section, verses, the latter half of verse 5 on through 7, you see an emphasis upon a ready willingness, a happy willingness, that is, there's no arm twisting going on here. And let's look at how that breaks down. In verse 5, interesting way uh, of expressing this in the original language. In talking about the gift, the, the guys have come, they're coming down, they're making sure every, you know, everything is prepared, everything's arranged so that all can be collected, accounted for, packaged up, ready to go. So that it may be ready as a willing gift. Now, when you see willing gift in the English there, you think it's, that has a positive connotation to it, right? I mean, it's a positive word, I'm willing. In the original language, it's a negative. It, it doesn't say willing, it says not greedy. So willing is a positive flip side of, of saying that. But the, the actual literal meaning here, it may be as a gift that is not greedy, not covetous, not stingy, in other words. Okay, fine, I gotta give something, here's a buck. All right, well, if all you've got's a buck, that's awesome. But if you can do more, probably should. I mean, do we examine our hearts and look at, you know, <laughs> here's my, I, I pull a bill out of my wallet, but I'm not sure I have one in there right now. But anyway, it's like, I got a bill in my hand, and it's like somebody trying to pull it out. Well, okay, okay, fine, right? No, there's no stinginess, no greediness, no, I got to think about me first. It's what can I do to help? And it may be a little according to your means, or it may be a lot according to your means. Again, Paul doesn't make that an issue at all. He, he's talking about the attitudes of the heart and how willing you are how eager you are, and that you are not being greedy about this. Not being covetousness, covetous about it. Look at the word gift. Willing gift. And that gift, uh, is, it's used this way a couple of times in this passage. The word gift comes from a word that means bounty or blessing. Bounty or blessing. This is really kind of cool because then when he goes on and says, okay, a not greedy bounty, a, a, an unstingy blessing is what literally is saying there. And that's the nature of your giving. When you get down to verse six and he talks about sowing sparingly, reaping sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The word bountifully is the same word as gift in verse 5. So all this is to say that willingness, it's not greedy, it's not covetous, it's not stingy, and it's not limited. 
You don't put it. You don't put a a, a a leash on your willingness, on your eagerness to be a blessing to others in your giving. But you think in terms of how much can I give, not how little can I get by with giving. Pretty big difference there. And notice also in verse seven. This willingness is not a grudging willingness. It also, this, and verse five also gives you a a heads up to verse seven as well in that word exaction. That word exaction means basically being grudgingly compelled to do something. Somebody's forcing you to do this. Um, But there's no grudging giving here. But in verse seven, as you have decided in your heart, be willing to give. Now, let me be real quick to say, I don't think Paul is saying, uh, by this, and we talked about this before in tithes and offerings, and we've, uh, we've had that message in, before. It's, it's not so much, well, I don't have to tithe, or I don't have to obey the Lord in giving, or I can give kind of whenever I feel like it, or whatever, just as I decided in my heart, hey, anything goes. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that every person needs to be internally motivated. Everyone standing before God by faith, ready to think, all right, what can I do? This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be determined to carry it out. Not being, oh, fine. Guess we have to. Here comes the plate. I don't want anybody to think that I'm not generous, so I'll throw something in there. That's being grudgingly compelled. And I've sat through plenty. I'm, I'm talking a lot about, you know, from the the person sitting in the pew standpoint, but I've been through to plenty of meetings too where I've seen lots of, of hyper-emotional arm twisting on the part of leadership to get people to give, which is the opposite side of the problem to the point that almost by... Manipulation, if not coercion, to compel somebody to give, contrary to as they as they stand before God, um, and that's a problem too. So no grudgingness. Uh, gr- is that a word? Grudgingness. I don't know. Anyway, don't be grudging. Don't begrudge giving uh, unto the Lord. And uh, kind of a similar kind of thought, but I'm, I'm pulling off of a couple of other words here, so I'm making a separate point of it. In, a, some, in many ways, this is a multifaceted thing. So a couple of other facets here. It's Not only is it not to be grudging, it's not to be forced, and that gets to the coercion and the manipulation aspect here, uh, forced either from your, your own self or from external force uh, that would be placed upon you. Each one must give, verse 7, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Reluctantly has the idea, uh, it could be translated, not being grieved in spirit. What does that have to do with giving? You know, I'm going to give something to somebody. I don't want to give when I'm grieved in spirit. You know, there are jokes around about how painful it is for some people to let go of a dime, right? But, you know, for some people, that miserly kind of attitude is very real. And 
and I, there's almost an emotional pain to let go of, of stuff. Um, and finding all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't give it to this, that, or the other person, or this, that, or the other cause, or, the, or whatever. There should be a joy in your spirit. That's part of the willingness. A joy to be able to give, whatever it is. If all you can give is a dime, if that's it, then awesome. But there ought to be a joy in it uh, without being reluctant, without being grieved. Like, oh, this just pains me to do this. It, there shouldn't be any of that. And then compulsion has the idea of constraint. And not, by, not by having your arm twisted to do it. So you can see there's all these nuances that are here. You know, there, are, there are some churches, and by that I mean denominations, that... You know, part of being the in the denomination for a local church is to pay uh, a subscribed amount, a prescribed amount, based on your, um, um, sorry, based on your population, based upon the number of congregants that you have in the church. You basically pay a head tax on everybody, and it gets sent to the denomination, where then it is used according to whatever the denomination thinks it should be used for. Uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church is not set up that way. Uh, because the old PCUSA church, I, I don't know if they still do that, but they used to. And um, our, our founding fathers found that to be repugnant uh, to passages like this. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't take a head tax here. If you're going to be here, you all have to pay X amount of dollars. Um, no, there is an urging to come alongside. Here's the budget. Here are the needs. Let's meet them and why everybody gets on board to approve that so that our hearts are all in it, not being forced, not being constrained. Oh, you, you, know, you you've got to give $1,000 this month. Um, you've got to give 500 this month. You've got to give whatever. No, we don't do that sort of thing. So your willingness is just coming out of the freedom of your heart before God, standing before him. And again, did I, you know, I need to re remind you that it's giving that is bountiful and not limited. And then finally, we get to the, the, the phrase that we began with, God loves a cheerful giver. We're talking about cheerful giving. It's not just, okay, I'm feeling pretty good about this. It's like, no, it's really a recognition of who you are in relationship to God and, and to his people and giving abundantly with joy, with no restraint, with, uh, in terms of feeling like you're compelled or, or, or coerced into doing something, but you're giving freely. That is what cheerful giving is all about. So when you look at that picture of willingness um, and of cheerful giving and a readiness, all of that sounds wonderful. But we have, uh, there may be some little yeah buts coming up in your head. So Paul knows that those things are coming. So he addresses them in this last section. And really, if you go back and remember from chapter 8, remember how he finished that up, quoted up from the book of Exodus, um, from when they were collecting manna. And basically, if you gathered a lot, you didn't have any left over. And if you gathered a little, you didn't <coughs> have any lack. You had everything you needed. So it's not about how much. It's, you're looking to the Lord's provision here. And Paul returns to that theme in talking about 
the Lord's provision for you as you are cheerfully giving to his people, to his work. But there um, are some pretty uh, severe errors in the modern day related to something that is often called the prosperity gospel. One of the uh, primary prophets of the uh, prosperity gospel these days, though there have been numerous other ones uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, probably the biggest one, the biggest name anyway, is a guy you've probably heard of. His name is Joel Osteen. And Joel Osteen, um, I'm sure he's got, a, he's got a big church, he's got lots of money. Um, we were talking about this in Sunday school. He's got a big church, he's got lots of money, everything looks great. He must be blessed by God. And a lot of people buy that lie. And one of the reasons they buy that lie is because um, there is just tiny little bits of truth sprinkled in all of his heresy. For example, when you focus on being a blessing, he said, God makes sure that you are always blessed in abundance. Now that sounds a lot like what our text just said, doesn't it? What I just read? But what does he mean by that? Well, when he starts unpacking that phrase, this is what he means. The first step, this is from his book, Your Best Life Now. The first step to living at your full potential is to enlarge your vision. Seeing yourself rising to new levels. Seeing your dreams coming to pass. Okay, if anybody needs Tums, I can distribute them after the service. You, you must conceive it and believe it is possible if you ever hope to experience it. You will produce what you're continually seeing in your mind. If you develop an image of victory, success, health, abundance, joy, peace, and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. I want you to... Don't think about it too long, but I want you to think about what he just said. And think about it as in relation to our text. Yes, is God going to bless you as you give abundantly and willingly and eagerly and joyfully to him? Yes, he will. But Osteen's version of that is utterly and completely self-serving. Utterly and completely completely opposite of what Paul is encouraging here and reminding us of. Same principle, God will take care of you as you uh, are, are generous with the things that he's made you the steward of. True, fine, but full stop from there on out of there being any similarity. Uh, there is no gospel in anything Osteen says. There's no good news there. It's your favor with God is all about what you do your merit instead of your favor with God being dependent upon the blessing and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So no gospel there. There's no grace. Frankly, only thing in what he said, though it sounds just really peachy, really all you have here is the ignorance that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 17, uh, chapter 3 and verse 17, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's Osteen's version 
of prosperity. I, for one, don't want it. And I hope you don't either. When God says he's going to bless us, cheerful giving results in an enrichment that goes far beyond anything that we can ask or think. It's a gracious enrichment. Remember, we started with grace in chapter 8 in this section. And now we're coming back to grace. What does it say there in verse 8? God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in your bank accounts. Is that what it says? That you may abound in every good work. You, by God's grace, as he's poured out to you his grace, and you, you have an overflowing of grace out of your life, in every area of your life, you will have everything you need to do every good work that could ever come into your mind in service to the king. God will provide. What God, a saying that I've always liked, I don't know, I don't know whether I made it up years ago or I read it somewhere, but anyway, it's been so long I've forgotten. But uh, what God orders, he pays for. You never have to worry about lacking in service of the king. Because you are, first of all, enriched by God's grace. That's, again, chapter 8, verses 11 through 15, talks about the benefit. It's not just going to be a benefit to, uh, to the folks in Jerusalem. It's going to be a benefit to you. And we talked about that concept of, of benefit or the blessing there. The benefit of having an abundant supply without regard to your situation. Whatever it is, you will have what you need. And a benefit that the Lord continues to pour out that takes care of God's people, all of them, all the time. That is the benefit. That's the blessing that's coming out of this. God's favor, this grace to meet every every need. There is no excuse for any believer to ever say, well, you know, if I give to God, if I give to the church here, I won't be able to pay my bills. The Lord knows what your bills are. He knows what your needs are. Remember years ago when I was starting the church in St. Helens, we were, Karen and I were driving down there a week, a week from Tacoma, in St. Helens, Oregon, and uh, had someone up in Tacoma who loved us dearly and was concerned about us. And they said, well, you know, the question was, how are you going to survive? And my answer at the time, my, my, I, I would come through, there were times when my, that this confident faith that I expressed would be tested. But nonetheless, at the time, God gave me the grace to say, the Lord will take care of us. I'm not worried about it. And in all that time, starting a church, and those of you, there aren't too many of you here uh, that, well, there's just a couple of you that have been, a few of you that were here at the very beginning of this work, but maybe you've been a part of other small churches or church plants or whatever. And you know that there's, that four out of five church plants fail a lot, a lot of times because of money and other things like that. A lot of uncertainty there. So, yeah, you know what? In all those circumstances, in every church plant I've ever been a part of, um, paychecks may not have been big, but I never missed one. The Lord took care of every single need and has always done so from day one.
and he continues to do so in a marvelous way. And it's because of his grace. It's not because I'm such a great guy or because I have such an awesome wife. That's more likely a reason, but certainly it's not because of me. It's because God is faithful and what he orders, he will pay for. Because of his grace, because of his favor, so that his, he will build his kingdom through his people. And that's awesome. Look at verse eight again. I love this, right? Just how many alls are in this? God is able to make all grace abound to you. There's no limit to his giving. He's absolutely eager and joyful to pour out his abundance upon his people. Absolutely. So on that little bit, Osteen got it right. He messed up the rest of it. But God does delight to bless his people. All right? But it's he all grace so that having all sufficiency, everything you need, in all things, at all times, some of you have been or, or, or are in financial challenges. And yet even in those times of financial challenge and shortfall, the Lord continues to bless. You may be wondering, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Some of you are starting up businesses and you know, moves and all these other things going. You're watching your, <laughs> you're watching your bank account balance go right and yet and I don't mean to make light of it it's a serious thing pray about it the Lord will take care of you um, I don't see anybody starving here we're the Lord is taking care of us even in times when we go I'm not sure how I'm going to pay this bill I'm not sure how I'm going to do that and yet as we continue to walk before him um, in love and in honor particularly as we are generous with him and with his people, absolutely, he will be taking care of us. That brings me to verses, uh, uh, verse uh, 9, as it is written, and, and this, is why, uh, this is why this grace that, is, that we're given is to flow out to others. And here we're coming to this word that I mentioned to you uh, earlier. As it is written, he, that is the Lord, has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Why is the word righteousness in there? I mean, we're talking about money. What does that have to do with righteousness? And down a little bit later, right, uh, it's mentioned again, the end of verse 10. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. Those of you, those of you that have been here for a while know that uh, the, the, I believe you should know the, um, the simple definition of righteousness. Righteousness is, it simply means an adherence to a standard. I often use the image of putting a level or a plumb line up against a wall. And if, it's, if that wall is lined up with that line, with that, with that level, we call it a righteous wall. Why? Because it's conformed to the standard. If it's like a lot of older buildings where it's not square and it's whatever else, we say that is an unrighteous wall because right? it's not in conformity to the standard. So why is righteousness here when it comes to giving? 
Now, yes, the immediate context has to do with giving of funds for the people in Jerusalem. But clearly there is more going on than funds here. There's also service. There's also uh, a spiritual uh, abundance that's to overflow. The grace that God has given to you is to overflow to others. We've talked about that before. Here's why righteousness is there, I believe. It's because, as we see here in verse 9, that the Lord has set the standard by His own acts and consistent with His character. He has shown what it means out of abundance and willingness and eagerness and earnestness to, to redeem His people and bless them. He's shown us the way. And so he, is, he has acted in a manner that is consistent with his character, which is the absolute standard by which everything else is measured. And that righteousness endures forever. He will not fail to live up to that standard. He will continue to bless his people. He will continue to pour out his grace upon them so that they in turn may serve in a way that is consistent with his character. Again, that kind of goes back to the integrity idea, doesn't it? You see how all this gets put together. By contrast, uh, maybe you haven't read the book of, if you haven't read the book of Haggai uh, in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, if you haven't read that in a while, I'd encourage you to do so, particularly the first chapter as it relates to this subject, though certainly the whole all, all, it's not a long book, it's three chapters, it's wonderful. Um, but he starts off with a rebuke there uh, against the people of Israel because the temple had, uh, building project had begun, but it was unfinished. They didn't, they got busy with their own priorities. He says, here's the temple of God lying in ruins while you're living in paneled houses. No, not tents, you're not nomads anymore. You guys aren't exiles anymore. You're living it up high on the hog. You've built yourself nice homes and so on. You're putting all that stuff in there. And yet, and this is where some of these uh, sayings come from uh, in our culture. Your pockets have holes in them. The money that you put in there, the money you put in your bags, the money you put in your pockets, it's just running out the holes. And you'll wonder why that you don't have any money to do anything. It's because, the prophet says, you have neglected the house of God. You've taken care of yourself first and left the temple derelict. Our service that comes to others should follow after the pattern of sacrificial ready giving that is consistent with the character of God and thus is righteous. Now let's talk about resources real quickly. In verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. All your, there will be blessing there in your resources. He will enrich you in resources according to whatever measure he has in mind for you and the things he wants you to do. But notice... I just love this. Again, uh, here's these resources, but it's going to be, you can increase your seed for sowing, but then it will also increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the harvest that results from your righteous behavior. 
So yes, there are material resources, but there's more than that. There are spiritual resources. And the emphasis here upon righteousness makes that clear, that he's not just talking about having bread on your, uh, food on your table, you know, paying your water bill, you know, whatever. He takes care of those things too. But the real blessing here is, is a showing of grace in as you share your material resources as well as your spiritual service unto the Lord. The, the blessing here that is poured out upon the giver, the, the, the harvest that comes out of, the, as a result of righteousness, it speaks to your standing before God. And essentially, how much like God are you in your giving? He's set the pattern. To be cheerful in our giving means we recognize that and we just give as much as we possibly can because we want to be as much like our God as we possibly can. And then, as we do that, what happens to others? They're blessed. And that's the big difference between the prosperity gospel and the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. That as you pour out the resources that God gives to you, there's, except for the joy that is involved in this, um, there's nothing here about God multiplying the dollar amounts in your bank account. It's everything about multiplying the joy and the benefit and the blessing to others. All the way through. And that leads to gratitude, and that's our final point of it being enriched in gratitude, verses 11 and 12. You'll be enriched in... Okay, if you had any question about anything that I've said, here you go in the first, the first bit of this sentence. You'll be enriched in every way to be a blessing in every way. That's why he gives you blessing, not so that you can consume it upon yourself. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And he's speaking of the proclamation and the boasting and so on to others. Uh, look, look at what God is doing here. And many will be lifting up praise to God, glorifying God, giving thanks to God as a result of God pouring out his blessing from his people in the church and without. That truly is the purpose for giving. There's no self-serving motivation here. Cheerful giving is about bringing glory to God and spiritual blessing to others. Uh, it's not about your own price, pr prosperity, and it's not even primarily about meeting the needs of others. Uh, I don't know, when I was a missionary, uh, field director of Presbyterian Missionary Union, how many times, I, I just don't know how many calls I got. People saying, we have this financial need, this financial need, that financial need, they're everywhere. It's never going to end. It, it, and there was no way we could possibly meet all of those things. We did what we could. And sometimes we look, this is pitiful. How, I'm not sure what good this is doing anybody, but just the fact that something, that somebody cared enough to do something uh, often was a source of incredible encouragement to those ministries that needed things. Didn't meet all their financial need. It was more about the spiritual benefit and the encouragement and the work of the Lord. And so that is what's going on here when he says, uh, that will produce thanksgiving to God. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 
Now, I'm going to, I'm using verses 13 through 15 as part of the conclusion. As this is the, as people receive this, as people understand what's going on, as they, with, by their approval of this service, in other words, they, they look at this and are they grateful for receiving the, the outpouring of grace in their lives by you? Yeah, they are. That's, that's the point here. They're going to uh, glorify God because of your submission. Be thankful for what God has done uh, in, uh, in using you to be a blessing to others. Uh, just, they're going to glorify because of your testimony and also because of the generosity of the actual gift itself that is in itself a blessing to whatever it is. And then in return, what other blessing? Here's, of all the things in this chapter that talks about blessing coming back to you directly, this is the most direct one. That they in turn will pray for you. That they in turn will, will long for your fellowship. It's a knitting together of the body and a mutual upholding of one another that comes as a result of being generous with what God has given to us. Why were you able to do that? And why do they do it? It's because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Now, if you confess to know the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, confess to love him, but struggle with submission to his will when it comes to, to uh, uh, this or anything else, uh, or you struggle with generosity to the church or generosity to others, at the very least, you don't understand, you don't grasp the nature and the extent of his grace upon you. And at the worst, you have never experienced it to begin with. Notice the connection between the gospel and grace. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's a different word for gift here. It's not talking about the money. It's talking about his grace. Shown through the Lord Jesus Christ, which we looked at pretty intensely uh, in, verse, in chapter 8. So grace is coming full circle as Paul wraps up this discussion about the gift that's going to Jerusalem. Having received God's grace, your life will be characterized by cheerful giving for His glory, cheerful giving for the benefit of others. And we're talking about strongholds in this section, uh, in this chapter. Strongholds that need to be put down. When it comes to, to money, greed can be a big stronghold, can it not? And covetousness. And fear, right? Fear, I won't be able to do this, won't be able to do that, won't, won't cover this, won't cover that. Here is a way of addressing that stronghold through cheerful giving and trusting the Lord as He pours out His grace upon you. Uh, you that in turn will not only bless you, but bless everyone around you. So be a cheerful giver and strike down the strongholds of greed and fear. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercies, which are new every morning. We thank you for your great faithfulness. We thank you that you consistently love us and care for us as your people in accordance with your righteousness, in accordance with your character. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you are righteous. Help us to be righteous in the way that we treat one another, regard one another, and sacrifice for one another, and give uh, back to you and to one another with free and open hearts that are full of joy and thus receive joy and the blessing of greater fellowship and communion together. Lord, may Christ be 
be glorified among us. He who gave everything for us that we might live. Lord, let us walk in a manner that is worthy of our Savior.